Wonderful. Let's take our Bibles together this morning and let's go to the book of Psalms. Psalms 86, please, is where we'll find our text this morning. And uh, we have called this day Friend Day. And uh, some of you, you're here today because a friend invited you to come to church with them. And I'm so glad that you took them up on that invitation. Uh, I am well aware that uh, it can be a little bit scary to come to a church where you don't normally go and where you may not know a whole lot of people. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here today and for coming at the invitation of a friend. Maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a neighbor. You know, we have lots of different ideas of what friends are. I, um, I'm reminded of one of my children when they were young. I won't tell you which one. But one of my children, when they, were, when they were young, they went to kindergarten. And we were so excited for them to be in school and for them to begin to learn and to grow. And one, sun, one, one, one sunny morning, or one sunny afternoon, I should say, I went to pick them up. And I walked into the door of the school, and the teacher was waiting for me. That's never good. That's never good at all. The teacher pulled me aside and was sort of, you know, kind of pulled me off to the side. He was being a little bit quiet. They said, I just want you to know that your, your child cheated today on one of their assignments. And, um, you know, here I am. I'm supposed to be a preacher. And my kids are supposed to be well-behaved. Well, that went out the window really early, you know. And, and I said, I'm so sorry. I, I said, I'll, I'll talk to them and we'll figure out what's going on and, and we'll try to get to the bottom of this thing. And so as we were riding home in the car, I, I tried to gently bring up the subject and I said, listen, I said, your teacher pulled me aside and, and they told me that you were cheating, that you had looked on the, the assignment of someone else and you were copying some of their answers. And this child spoke up from the back seat and they said, daddy, it's no problem. The person that I was looking on their paper, we're best friends. I knew she wouldn't mind. <laughs> Those were the exact words that my child gave me. And uh, so apparently, if, if you're friends with someone, then you can, you can borrow their, you can copy their work. Apparently, that's the case. I heard about two friends that were hiking one day in the woods, and they were out, and beautiful day, just enjoying nature, and all of a sudden, they came around a corner, and they were startled to find that in their path was a large grizzly bear. And uh, they looked at one another, they looked at the bear, and their hearts were filled with fear, and the one reached down and began to tie his shoes really tight, and he said, why are you doing that? He said, you'll never be able to outrun a grizzly bear, to which the friend replied, I don't need to outrun the grizzly bear, I just need to outrun you. <laughs> and apparently, he got that done and lived to tell about it. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what you have as far as friendships are concerned in this life, but I will tell you this. The best friend in all of the world is a friend who will invite you to come to church with them so that you can hear the gospel and so that you can hear what Jesus Christ has done for them. And I promised our people that if they work really hard at bringing a friend with them to church this morning, I would work really hard at pointing their friends to Jesus Christ and trying to give the gospel. And so I'd like for you to take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 86. You may be there already. And we're going to read a good portion of this psalm. It's a really a prayer uh, that David is praying uh, to the Lord. And I want you to see it with me. The Bible says in Psalm 86 in verse number one, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. 
Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. The familiar hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, was written by Joseph Scriven. He wrote it in the year 1855. Joseph wrote this hymn while living near Port Hope, Ontario, Canada. He was born in Ireland, and after completing his schoolwork, he enrolled in a military college in hope of of a lengthy military career, and yet it was at that point that poor health derailed him from this particular ambition, and he was told that you'll never have a lengthy military career. He was soon to deal with another devastating trial when his fiance died, I'm given to understand, in a drowning accident one day prior to them being married. After relocating to Canada, Joseph taught in schools in Woodstock and Brantford where his plans for marriage were once again halted due to the death of his bride-to-be after a very short illness in the same year that he wrote the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Scriven, from this point on, seldom had a regular income and was usually found living in the home of someone else. Though he dealt with in his life much grief and difficulty and heartache, the one constant that he had was his relationship with the Lord. Knowing the circumstances and the little bit of the background that we've given you of his life and and, and understanding that perhaps maybe enables the, the hymn that he wrote to maybe be just a little bit more rich and just provide a little bit more depth in meaning when we consider these words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This morning as you have entered into God's house, perhaps you too, as you look over the totality of your life, recognize and acknowledge that you've dealt with some seemingly uh, maybe more heartache and more difficulty than you have joy and success. If you have not yet learned this, you soon will, that this world is a difficult place. We might even say this world is a broken place full of much disappointment 
and sorrow. Uh, Even other human beings, those that maybe we consider to be friends, those that we're close to from time to time, uh, bring sorrow and heartache into our lives due to their own personal struggles in this fallen world. I've even talked to some people who who have admitted to me that they do not or they will not trust anyone here in this life. I think all of us can maybe somewhat understand this sentiment. You've been let down. You've had your heart broken. You've had someone that has disappointed you or has failed you at one time or another. What if I told you, what if I told you that there was a friend that you could truly trust? A friend you could completely rely on. A friend who would never leave your side or never forsake you. The title of the message this morning is this, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. There is such a friend. His name is Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse number 5, For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There is such a friend, and his name is Jesus. In Psalm 86, David is praying to this particular friend. He is desperate, and he is needy, according to verse number 1. And though you and I might experience moments of blessing and prosperity, most of us would have to admit that we too are are predominantly desperate and needy down here in this world living this life. David, a desperate and needy man, asks a, a high and holy God to bow down his ear to him in verse number one. Can I say that that really is what prayer is? Prayer is desperate men and women asking an eternal, all-powerful, holy God to bow down his ear and to hear them. And guess what? He does. He does hear us. He is eager to listen to us. The Bible says in Psalm 34, verse number 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The Bible says in Psalm 34, verses 17 to 19, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm 40 and verse number 17 echoes this same thought where the Bible says, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. And in Psalm 72 and verse number 12, once again we find these words, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also and him that hath no helper. I don't know what it is that you're dealing with today, but I do know this. I spent enough time with people, and I look at my own life, and I know that everyone comes to the church house on Sunday bearing some type of burden. Your burden, it may be uh, financial. It may be uh, something related to relationships. It, it may be just some longer, perhaps maybe it's a spiritual need, or maybe it's a physical health need that you're carrying. But I, I know this, I know this, that God delights in hearing from brokenhearted and desperate people. 
Maybe you came today because you find yourself in a similarly desperate situation as David finds himself in our text. And you've tried everything that you know uh, in search of meaning and satisfaction and trying to find hope in this burden that you're carrying. Perhaps friends have disappointed you and maybe accomplishments have not brought lasting satisfaction. Uh, Maybe even family has failed you. And I want you to allow me to take just a few moments to introduce you to a friend like no other. David describes him for us in this prayer. He describes this friend in our text, and I want you to consider these particular thoughts that we learn about this great friend that we have in Jesus. Number one, I think we discover in Psalm 86 that this friend is a friend who is always available in the day of trouble. He is a friend who is always available in the day of trouble. Did you see that in verse number seven? Uh, David is writing and he says this, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee for thou wilt answer me. Now, are you anything like me? I found myself here in recent days as I have gotten more and more uh, phone calls on my cell phone from numbers that I don't recognize. I found myself ignoring those altogether. In other words, if you, if you do not find yourself in my, in my contacts and you call me, I'm going to let it go to voicemail. My thinking is if, they, if, if it's actually somebody who wants to talk to me and they're not trying to sell something and they're not trying to sign me up for something, then they'll leave me a voicemail and I can get back to them. And so many times my phone will ring and my kids will go, Daddy, your phone is ringing. And I'll say, I know it is. Well, aren't you going to pick it up? No, I'm not going to. Well, Daddy, why aren't you going to pick it up? That, that's the whole purpose of having a phone. And I'll say, I'll try to, you know, try to remind them, well, there's, there's not a name attached to that number. And so if they need me and it's somebody that actually is real and it's not some computer that's calling me, then they can leave me a voicemail and I will call them back. Now, that may be a little bit of a frustration if you're on the other end of things, but I think most of us understand why we would do something like that, and perhaps many of you find yourself doing similarly. But aren't you glad to know that when you pick up the phone in a in a figurative sense and you place a phone call to the Lord in the way of prayer, aren't you glad to know that he is always there to hear in your day of trouble? He is a friend that is always available in the day of trouble. You know, the day of trouble comes upon us without warning or advance notice. In other words, none of us, none of us are looking at our calendar for the week ahead and we're saying, okay, on Thursday, the hot water tank's gonna go down. I just know it. I just know that's going to happen. And so I need to get some things in order in order to prepare for that. None of us, none of us ever look at our calendar and say, okay, on Wednesday I'm going to go into work and the boss is going to call me in the office and he's going to let me go. <laughs> I already know. I've got that. It's right here in my calendar. I'm going to get fired from my job this coming Wednesday. No, the day of trouble, it is always unexpected. It comes without warning or advance notice. Of the day of trouble, it might be a cancer diagnosis. It could be divorce papers that are served. It could be a job termination or maybe an eviction notice. Or it might be a massive heart attack in the life of someone that we know and love. It could be the betrayal of a close friend. Or it could be a thousand other calamities that enter into life. It could happen in the middle of the night. Uh, It could happen on a weekend 
weekend. It could happen on a vacation day. And can I say that, listen, others may be unavailable to you in the day of your trouble. Uh, Others may not be able to help you in the day of your trouble. You might hear from them something like, I'd love to help you, but, and as good intention as your friends and family may be, they may be unable or they may be unavailable to help you during the day of trouble. But I have found this. I have found that Christ is never unavailable, that Christ is always ready. He is always available during our days of heartache. The scriptures are clear. I can call upon him, and so can you in the day of trouble, and he will answer me. Several years ago, my wife had come to me. We were expecting our third child. At that time, she was working part-time. She was working a job, I think maybe two days a week. She was working for a, a doctor here in this community and just doing some office work for him. And she came to me, and on those two days, our two oldest children were going to my parents' house, and my mom was watching them, and she just said, you know, I really feel like, you know, we, we should readjust this, and maybe I should quit this job so that I can stay home all the time with my children. And of course, I was the one doing the bills, and I was responsible for the budget, and I remember looking at her, and I, I remember saying something like this, I don't think that's what you ought to do. And, uh, and she, she, she looked at me and she said, you know, I really prayed about this and I really feel certain that this is what the Lord would have us to do. And I, I remember looking at her and saying, you know, well, maybe you ought to go and pray some more because I really don't think this is what you ought to do. And, and, uh, and, yet, and yet I knew she walked with the Lord and I knew that this was the desire of her heart. And so we made the adjustment. And I said, all right, if you really are convinced that this is what the Lord would have you to do, then I suppose you can quit your job and we're just going to have to trust the Lord to meet some of our needs because as it stood, even though she was working two days a week, those two days a week were a real help to us financially. And so she quit her job and we began, if I remember correctly, it felt like about a year's worth of, you know, just clawing and scratching our way through life and just trying to survive. I'll never forget, uh, it was a, I remember, I feel like it was in the summertime, it was a beautiful day outside, and, and, uh, and I had gotten paid, and I went and I sat down there, as, as many of you do, and I paid all of our bills, you know, and I took care of all of our obligations and all of our responsibilities, and I remember that I was still, this is payday, I'm still looking at two weeks worth of, uh, of, of life and living in which we really didn't have much money to put gas in the car, nor did we have much money really to buy groceries. We were still sort of in that adjustment period of adjusting our lives to one income uh, from what it had been previously. And I remember, I remember, you know, paying all of the bills and looking at the ledger and thinking to myself, you know, we had like, like $15 left and I was really down and discouraged and I was sort of annoyed, you know, I was annoyed at everything. I was annoyed that my wife had quit her job. I mean, what was wrong with her? Doesn't she understand that we can't make it unless she's working? And I'm, a, and I'm annoyed that I, uh, that, that I don't have any other skills. <laughs> you know, maybe if I would have known what I was doing, I could have gone out and, you know, built something for somebody or used my, my hands to make something, and, and I didn't have any ability to do that. And, and I remember I was sort of having a little bit of a pity party. We all do that from time to time when we enter into the day of trouble and into the day of struggle. And, and I remember it was like the Holy Spirit said, you know, hey, you're a preacher, aren't you? you're a Christian, aren't you? Why don't you pray? And why don't you talk to me about it instead of complain about it? And I was sort of convicted by that. And 
And so I did. I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm sorry that I have been complaining and have really not trusted that you're going to meet some, some needs here. And, and I said, I just, I, I just, I guess I just got frustrated. I got discouraged. And, and, uh, and I said, Lord, you know the need. We have two weeks to go. We've got two cars sitting out in that driveway. Both of them are, are, uh, are, are practically tanks and they have lots of uh, gallons of gas that they use. And, and we're, I don't know, I, we might have to ride our bikes for the next two weeks. And Lord, you know the refrigerator refrigerator is mostly empty. And you're looking at me going, yeah, right. The refrigerator's never been empty in your life. But it was pretty much at that time. And I said, Lord, you know the need. And Lord, would you, would you do something unusual? It was the next day, if I remember correctly, the next day we had come home from being somewhere and, and, uh, and, and my wife sat down at our, uh, at our computer there in the home and I remember she was checking her email and I remember, and she knew, she knew of the need and of the burden and I remember she said something like this, oh my, oh my, oh my. And that could be either really good or it could be really bad. And I said, what are you oh myeing about, you know? And she said, she said, do you remember your, your brother when he had bought that house? He was giving some things to us that, and we thought we might be able to use it, but we couldn't use it. And she said, he had given us this item. And, uh, and, and, and she said, I think it's sitting out in the garage. And she said, I listed it on Craigslist probably six months ago. And no one, no one had any interest in that item whatsoever until today. Well, my first question was, how much did you list it for? <laughs> and when she told me, literally, when she told me how much she had listed it for, this is no joke, it was almost the exact same amount that she would have made had she gone to work in, in, in that time. I'll never forget it. And I said, you call them right now and you get them over here right now and let's swing this deal, let's make it happen. And it was the next day, they came by the next day. I remember I was, I was, I was at work and I remember calling her, how did it go? Did they give us the money? And they gave us the money and as you can tell, we, we lived to survive another day. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the fact that God was available to me during my day of trouble. And that God, I, I really, I, you, know, you, you can disagree with me if you want to, but I think God, I think God maybe perhaps hid that listing for six months. Because God knew, God knew a day was coming when we would be desperate, poor, and needy. And God said, hey, listen, I'm going to teach them a lesson that if they'll call upon me during their day of trouble, I will be there to hear them and to answer them. You know, I know we live in a world in which many people doubt the existence of God, but you have some things like that happen in your life, and you will never doubt the existence of God, that he is real, that he cares, that he hears, and he answers prayer. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only is he a friend who is always available in the day of trouble, but number two, he is a friend who is great and does wondrous things. In verses 8 to 10, David describes God, and he says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. We discover in verse number 8, don't we? That our God, this friend that we're describing or that is being described for us here in Psalm 86, we discover that he is above all things. He is above all things. The Bible says, among the gods there is none like unto thee, neither are there any works like unto thy works. You know, human beings throughout history have, have always had a longing or a yearning in their heart to worship something or someone. 
We know that to be true. You can go to just about any culture, even cultures that don't even have a clear translation of the word of God. They have no Bible that has been translated in their language. They know nothing about the God of the Bible. They know nothing about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you will find, you will find that most of them, most of them are worshiping something. There's an innate desire in our hearts for worship. Some have worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars, while others worship gods made of wood and stone. Some even worship themselves or maybe worship some other man. The scriptures reveal that our God is above all of these things. None of them, not even the sun or the moon that gives off, off such great light, none of them can ever compare to him. The greatest works of men can never rival the work of Almighty God. Nebuchadnezzar, you know the story in the book of Daniel in chapter number three, he decreed that everyone living in his kingdom should bow down and should worship his God, small little G there, his God made of gold. And he threatened those who refused to do so. He said, listen, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to have you bound and thrown into a fiery furnace. There were three Hebrew young men living in his kingdom at that time. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those three young men, they chose to stand. They, they did not know what the outcome was going to be. In fact, here's what they told the king. They said, listen, our God is able to deliver us. We know that he's able. And then they said this, but if not, if he doesn't deliver us, if for some reason he allows us to die in your fiery furnace, we're still not going to bow down. We're still not going to do it. I mean, these men were so, such principled young men. They decided that they were going to defy the king's order, and they were thrown in to this fiery furnace. However, God did wondrous things for them, and they suffered no hurt, according to Daniel chapter number 3 and verse number 25. Leading, listen, leading the king who had decreed that this were to take place to say these words in Daniel 3, 28 and 29. He said this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. At the end of verse number 29, he said this, There is no other god that can deliver after this sword. I was just reading in my own personal Bible reading this morning in the book of Numbers. And did you know that in the book of Numbers, God's people had, uh, had really grown weary and frustrated with just eating manna day after day. And they complained and they lamented and they said, God, we, we, want, we want to eat some meat and we want some flesh to eat. We're just sick of eating this bread day after day after day. And you know what God did? God, God said this. God said, I'm going to fill you up with so much flesh, you're going to wish you'd never asked for such a thing. And you know what he did? The Bible says that he caused a wind to come from, uh, from, from a particular direction and it brought quail from the, uh, from the Red Sea. And the Bible says that the quail filled a valley, that it was, you walk a day's journey that way and you walk a day's journey that way and the quail was literally two cubits high. They spent days collecting all of the quail that was there. I'm just here to tell you, listen, our God is an amazing God. And he does great and wondrous things. Things that you and I could never do. Things like delivering three Hebrew children from a fiery furnace. 
Things like filling a valley full of quail, bringing that quail from the Red Sea, driving it all that way through a wind, meeting the needs of his people. Our God, listen, is above all things. But notice we see in verse number nine, not only is he above all things, but he has created all things. There's a little phrase that's found in verse number nine that I want to call your attention to. The Bible says, they're all nations whom thou hast made. Whom thou hast made. We know the Bible tells us that God created everything. The book of Genesis makes this very, very clear. But did you know that God also made the nation? We, we like to look at our nation and we like to swell with pride when we think of the United States of America and we certainly think of the men and the women who have given their lives in service to this country so that we can enjoy some of the things that we have today. And I certainly don't want to dismiss them and, and the sacrifices that they have made. In just a few short weeks, we'll celebrate as a country Veterans Day and we'll spend a day just thanking God for the men and women who have, who have served in the United States Armed Forces, many of you perhaps sitting here. And I certainly don't want to dismiss or make light of your sacrifice. But, but listen, I think it's pretty obvious that we have what we have today because God has given it to us. The nations whom thou hast made... Of course, David is a member of the nation of Israel. He would serve as its king for 40 years. There's no nation that I'm aware of that has any history like the nation of Israel. Certainly a nation who God had made. Sometimes we sit and we're filled with fear and we're filled with anxiety over some of the nations that are in our world today and maybe some of the danger, the threat that they pose toward us. And we maybe, maybe we're, our hearts are filled with anxiousness and, and worry and fear. And I just want to remind you that, listen, God is in control of all things, that he has created all things it has become popular in our world today to disregard God's work, his handiwork, and the element of creation. And yet, if you and I would consider the complex nature of our universe, of the human body, and even of plant and animal life, we must conclude that these things would not exist without intelligent design. The designer of this intelligent design is our God himself, and his son, Jesus Christ, who is the creator, the giver of life, and the sustainer of all things. He has created all things. And so we discover that he is a friend who is great and does wondrous things. But notice, notice thirdly, he is a friend, the Bible tells us, of absolute truth. Would you look in verse number 11? It says this, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. You know, I, I, I've noticed this, this popular phrase that has been used here in recent days, and the, and the phrase says something like this. People will refer uh, to truth. They'll say, this is my truth. Or they'll look at someone else and they'll say, well, that's your truth. As if, as if I, have a, I have a monopoly on truth, or as if you have a monopoly on truth. I, 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 was, I, was taught, I was taught as a boy growing up that, that truth was truth, whether it was mine or whether it was yours, or it didn't matter whose it was. If something was true, then it was true regardless of who said it or who was proclaiming it to be. 
And yet this is, the, this is sort of the general consensus in our world today that we, we can sort of conceptualize or we can, you know, we can come up with some ideology that maybe is not in line with what the rest of culture or society thinks and then we can claim it as ours and all of a sudden it can be valid or it can have some form of validity. I would say that in line with that of your truth and my truth, we're discovering in our world that this concept of or idea of absolute truth is being dismissed altogether. Because, because, well, if you have a truth and if I have a truth, well, then our truths probably are going to differ at some point or another. And so you're going to have to probably stick with what you think and I'm going to have to stick with what I think. And, and so we can, we can just disregard absolute truth altogether because it really just, all that matters is what do you think and what do I think? Many do not believe in absolute truth and and, and because of that, we discover much craziness in our culture, don't we? Can I, can I just say that absolute truth is the truth that's found in this book, the Word of God, the Bible. God's truth is found in this book. The truth that is proclaimed in God's Word is God's way. And here's the question, do you know what this way is? Wise people, they read and they study God's word so that they know God's way. Uh, There are many who know God's way, but they ignore it. Perhaps maybe you've lived that in your life, in which you know what God would have you to do, but you just really don't want to do it right now. And so you've gone your own way. Much like a child who hears their parent instruct them, hey, make sure you're home by 11, and that child comes home at 11.30. Now they can come up with a lot of excuses, but at the end of the day, they disobeyed what their parents said. Or maybe it's the little child who's crawling around and the parent says, hey, don't go over there, don't touch that. And they go and they touch it anyways. Even though they heard their mom, their dad saying, don't do it, they did it anyways. Well, can I just say that that's not behavior that is just limited to little children. Many times as adults, we know what God would have us to do. We know how God would have us to live. We know what the Bible proclaims and we just choose to ignore it. This is a friend of absolute truth. We must walk according to God's way. Is there, is there this morning, is there a known area in your life that is not according to God's truth and not according to God's way? And if there is, if you can look at your life and say, yeah, this is sort of out of order as it relates to what the Bible teaches. I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but I am. Or I know I should be doing that, but I'm not. If you can identify an area in your life that is out of order according to what God's way is, what do you suppose you should do about it? I'm going to leave that question up to you. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and work in your life because at the end of the day, he's a whole lot better at doing his job than I am at doing his job. But I'm just simply saying, if you can identify an area in your life, something in your life that is out of order according to this book and according to God's way, what do you think? What do you think you should do about it? If you had a friendship with someone And in that friendship, that person had revealed to you a type of behavior or a type of activity that they did not appreciate or they did not enjoy. What kind of friend would you be if you ignored that and you continued to involve yourself in that? Perhaps maybe you had a friend that maybe they didn't grow up in a home where where they did much teasing or kidding around, so they're not quite sure how to handle that. And so they said, listen, you know, I, I just, you know, I prefer that I not be teased. I never know how to handle that. And yet as a friend, you continue to do that. Don't you suppose that that would probably cause a little bit of a distance between you and that friend? We have a God in heaven who says, hey, do this, do that, stay away from that. 
Don't you suppose that it might cause just a little bit of a rift in our relationship if there are known things that God would tell us, hey, don't involve yourself in that, and yet we continue to do those things? God, he is a friend of absolute truth. But I want you to notice, fourthly and finally today, that he is a friend who delivered my soul from hell. All of these things are wonderful. And it is neat to know that God wants to hear in my day of trouble, that God wants to take care of me, and, and, and that God does great and wondrous things. All of that's wonderful, but all of that is so temporary. I mean, really it is. I promise you that had, had that Craigslist sale not gone through, we would have we managed. We would have survived. We would have gotten away. We, we would have gotten through it one way or another. There's a lot of people living in this world that have a whole lot less than we had at that moment, and, and, and we, would have, we would have managed. Certainly it was a faith builder. It was an encouraging thing. But I want you to know something. How do I know he's my friend? Because he delivered my soul from hell. The Bible's very clear about that in verses 12 to 13. You know, some have friends capable of bailing them out of maybe some great mess that they've created in life. Can I say no one? No one is capable of delivering someone else from hell. I have friends who come to my aid. I have lots of friends. Some of you sitting in this room, you come to my aid when a household appliance breaks down. I, I, almost got, I almost got like a Rolodex of names and numbers, you know. If this happens, I call that person. If that happens, I call this person. If it's a computer-related issue, and then there's people in this church I call. If it's a, you know, if it's a hardwired issue, it's an electrical issue, if it's a plumbing issue, I'm going to call this person, I'm going to call that person. And likely, maybe you've compiled a similar list. I'm thankful for folks like that. I'm thankful for those who know how to fix my vehicle when it breaks down or they know how to, you know, how to take care of my uh, refrigerator when it seems like it's not working quite right or maybe they can, they can get my computer working again when it's giving me trouble. I'm thankful for all of these people, but can I tell you my greatest problem is much beyond the power of any human being to solve or fix. Some of you, you have great ability in some of these areas that I've referenced. And you're on somebody else's Rolodex. When they have a problem, when they have an issue, immediately they call you. In fact, when you see the phone ring, you know, okay, I know what this is about. Because they never call me unless something has gone wrong, right? But can I tell you that there is a friend. I need a friend. You need a friend who can do more than deliver me when your tire is flat. And there's a friend who can do more than fix your hot water heater when it needs to be replaced. You need a friend, I need a friend who can deliver your soul from hell. Notice we discover in verse number 13 that he is a friend who delivered my soul from hell, first of all, because his mercy is great. The Bible says in verse 13, for great is thy mercy toward me. The word mercy is defined as benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. Now, I've put, that, I've put that definition there on the screen for you to see. This is actually, this is actually the, the, the uh, Webster's 1828 definition dictionary. It's much longer than this, but this is the primary meaning. But I have taken a little bit of license to add two specific words to this definition because I want to explain this to you in a spiritual sense. You see, the, the two words are found, there's little parentheses behind, around each one, and let's work through this definition again. Mercy is benevolence, 
mildness or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person. And then I put the word God right next to that. Because he is the person who is going to express mercy. That's what David says in verse number 13. That thy mercy is great toward me. So he's the one giving mercy. But notice who is he giving it to? To overlook injuries or to treat an offender, that's me. Better than he deserves. So mercy is me getting something from God that is more or better than what I actually deserve. It's me finding myself in a world of trouble, me finding myself guilty of a crime, and yet finding from God that I am not going to have to pay all of the penalty that is, that is due for the crime that has been committed. Years ago, I was driving a car as a teenager. I, I don't know why you remember certain things. I can't hardly remember what I had for, for lunch yesterday, but I remember this. I was 17 years old, and I was driving a car, and a police officer pulled me over. I was driving in a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and I was driving 53 miles an hour. Some of you are groaning. You should be. <laughs> that was not good. I cannot tell you. First ticket I ever got, and I cannot tell you, when I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw that police officer, I thought, I am dead. I am dead. I remember he came up and asked for my license and my registration. And because I was a teenage young man and I had, man, and I had other children even with me in the car, he made me get out of the front seat. He made me sit in the back seat of his car. And I thought to myself, I'm going to jail. <laughs> this is it. He didn't take me to jail that day, but I mean, he absolutely tore into me. And, he sh and, and rightfully so. I was driving like a maniac, <laughs> almost 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and I had young children with me in the car. It was a Saturday morning. I, I'll never forget it. He, um, he wrote out this piece of paper, and he gave it to me. I would later come to realize that was called a ticket. <laughs> and uh, th those are no good. You never want to get one of those. And I remember, I remember I came to the church immediately after. My dad, of course, at that time was, was the pastor. And I remember I walked up to his office, and I, you know, sheepishly kind of pulled out that pink slip of paper. And I said, hey, Dad, I, I got this today. And I remember he looked at it, and I thought, this is where my life ends. It's been a good 17 years, you know. We made it this far. I wasn't sure what the reaction was gonna be, but I thought I was dead. I thought I was seriously in trouble. And I remember he looked at it. My dad, he'd, he'd furrow his brow a little bit. Some of you have seen that, some of you have seen that look. He looked at it, and then he looked at me. I remember he said just something to this effect. He said, well, you're gonna pay it. And I thought, well, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I knew he wasn't gonna pay it. I, I, I knew I was gonna pay it. And that was pretty much all he said. I was blown away. I literally, I, 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 I wasn't sure what he was going to do, but I thought it was going to be a whole lot worse than that. And I thought, well, that was, that was something. And, and I, I thought, well, I, I said, well, Dad, how much is a ticket normally? And you know, it was mid-1990s. And he said, well, it's going to be at least $100. And so you better, you, know, you better see how much money you got. And if you don't have that, you better go to work. And, and, and so I remember we, we had, a, because I was a juvenile, we had a court date, actually, that was established. And uh, yeah, this was, this was serious stuff. And, and I said, Dad, do I need to get an attorney? Or, you know, what do I need here, you know? And he said, no, just show up. I'll go with you and, and, uh, and you and you should be fine. And so I remember the night before, the night before that was, to, that was to take place, I was sitting at home and our phone rang. And my dad answered the phone and, and I heard him having this conversation. He says, yes, yes, yeah, we do, we do. We have to go to the juvenile court tomorrow. And, and oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that would, be really, that would be really nice. We would really appreciate that. And, and then he hung the phone up. And I said, Dad, what was that all about? I knew he was talking about me, you know. 
And he said, you know, there's a dear lady that goes to our church and she works in the juvenile court and she saw your name on the docket for tomorrow. And she was just, you know, calling to get some information and she indicated that she, she knew the magistrate that was going to see you and, and she was just gonna put in a good word for you. That, who knows what's gonna happen or how this is all gonna go down, but she was gonna vouch for the fact that you were a pretty good guy. And so the next day I went. I, I went, I remember I, I walked into the juvenile facility there. It was chapel day at Heritage Christian School. I'm wearing a white shirt and a tie. I just didn't quite fit in in the juvenile court downtown. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking around. I'm like, this is not my crowd, you know? And, and people are looking at me saying, he's not, he's not one of us either, you know? And, and, uh, and I remember they called my name. My dad and I marched into this room. We were all by ourselves and there was a female magistrate sitting in the front of the room. And I mean, she absolutely eviscerated me that day. Do you understand that a car is like a weapon? And when you drive it like this, and speed limits exist for this reason and for that reason, and I mean, she just, she went down the the whole list of things. And then she looked at me and she said, the fine should be this much money. And I remember it was over $100. But she said, you have a friend here. And the friend has talked to me about you and says that you're a pretty nice guy. It says that you're involved in church and, and, uh, and that you even, you've even given your life to serve the Lord. And so this magistrate, I'll never forget it, she looked at me and she said, so I'm going to take it easy on you today. She said, we're, we're in a drive right now for Thanksgiving and we're trying to be a help to folks that don't have as much this time of year. And so if you'll bring in 30 cans of canned food by this date, that will be your sentence. That's it. You don't have to pay $100. You can go to Aldi's and, and spend you know, $15 and you'll be off the hook. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, that is amazing. That is mercy. Because that was a judge who looked upon me with benevolence, with mildness, with tenderness of heart, and they treated me in a way that was better than what I deserved. I never forgot it. Never forgot it. Can I say that in, in much the same way, God, in a much greater way, I should say, God has done that for every one of us. You see, my offenses are known as sin. And God, who is holy and who is righteous, he is also just, which means that he must judge or he must uh, pronounce judgment upon sin. God, he demands a payment for my sin and that payment is death according to scripture. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18 and verse number four, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible says in James 1, 15, then sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. If left alone, listen, to pay my sin debt, the only way, the only way I can do so is to die and burn for eternity in a place called the lake of fire. The Bible talks about that place in Revelation 21 and verse number eight. It is a real place, and it is a place that hundreds of millions of souls will spend eternity. But not, not because they didn't have an alternative. Not because they didn't have another choice or another option. No, no, that, that is one option, and many will suffer in that place, sadly. But listen, God is just, and he does judge, and he pronounces judgment upon sin. But I also understand that God is love. 
Would you look in Psalm 86? Would you look down to verse, verse number 15? Look what David says about this great friend. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. God is love. And because of that, he provided an alternative to that lake of fire. In other words, he made a way for you and for me, for all of us to avoid spending eternity in a place called the lake of fire and to spend eternity in a place called heaven. And you know what that's called? It's called mercy. Because our God is a God of great mercy. How did he do that? He sent his son Jesus to this world. And Jesus would live a sinless life and yet he would still die. He did not die as a normal man would. According to scripture, he died as a criminal would. But Christ had not committed any crimes. Well, here is an unusual thing. The Bible tells me that Christ died for my crimes. Christ died for your crimes. In other words, his mercy is so great that he does not merely overlook my sin. He suffered the punishment for my sin. In other words, it would be like that magistrate looking at me saying, the, the penalty is $100, but I can tell you're just a poor high school student. You're 17 years old. You barely have two nickels to rub together. And so I'm still going to charge $100. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm pulling out my checkbook right now, and I am going to deduct the money from my own personal account. That's what God did for me. God looked at me and said, you're so poor and you're so needy that left to yourself, you're going to spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. And I don't want you to go there. And I, and I can't just overlook it. I can't just tell you, you don't have to go there because I feel sorry for you. No, the justness of God and the righteousness of God demands a payment for my sin. And so you know what God did? God said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay the penalty for you. That's amazing, isn't it? Why did he do that? Because he is great in mercy. Because he is a God full of compassion. Now, now you see, don't you? Now you see, don't you? What a friend we have in Jesus. And he would do something for us like that. So we see that his mercy is great. But notice, we also know the Bible teaches that faith in Christ Jesus delivers my soul from hell. He's already done his part. He already did everything that needed to be done. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a signed blank check, if you will. If your need was financial, that check would be quite a blessing, wouldn't it? I mean, if somebody wrote a check and just said, hey, listen, there's no amount on here. I've already signed it. Whatever you need, just fill it out and cash it. Can I, can I just tell you that's what God did? Not in a financial sense. Because financial problems, they come and go. But listen, the spiritual problem is the greatest problem. Because it's the one thing, it's the one thing that you can't do anything about on your own and no one else can help you with. And God signed a blank check. So if you put your name on this check and you'll cash it, you'll deposit it, it will be sufficient for you to spend eternity with me in a place called heaven. On your own, your eternal destiny is sure to be the lowest hell. But faith in his death, burial, and resurrection delivers your soul from this destiny and gives you a new destiny called heaven. Can I say thirdly, as we conclude this morning, the deliverance of this friend, the deliverance of this friend demands a response. 
What he has done for every one of us, and now you've heard it. Maybe some of you, you're hearing this for the very first time. You've never heard this before. You never knew that Jesus Christ died for you and that he lives to save you and that if you'll call upon him in simple faith, he will save you. Can I say that, listen, now that you've heard this message, it demands a response. Notice, notice there's two responses. Number one is the response of the lost. The response of the lost. In other words, what do you suppose the response of those who are here today who have never been saved, never been born again, what do you suppose their response should be? I'll tell you what it should be. It's found in Acts 16 and verse number 30. A man asked the apostle Paul, he said, what must I do to be saved? You know, the answer was given in Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So the response of the lost should be, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, You've never been born again. You've never been saved. What do you suppose you ought to do about that? I suppose you could leave here same way you came in. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, we just told you somebody, somebody signed a blank check for you for your greatest need, and you're going to walk away from that? And you're not going to take advantage of that? You're, you're not going to deposit that check? Well, I can't make you do it. Some people have done that. They've walked in here, they've heard the message of the gospel, and they've walked out the same way they came in. A heart breaks, but we won't be able to force them to do anything. It's, it's a personal choice that they must make. But the response of the lost, the logical response would be, he did that for me? And all I have to do is just exercise faith in him and trust him? I can do that, and I will do that. That would be the response of the lost. But notice, secondly, the response of the saved. It's found in verse number 12 of Psalm 86. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. The psalmist writes what his response would be for this friend who delivered his soul from the lowest hell. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend the rest of my life praising his name. I'm going to spend the rest of my life glorifying him with my life and the way that I live. Years ago, a British publication offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. Among the thousands of answers that were received came the following. Somebody wrote this, one who multiplies joys, divides grief, and whose honesty is inviolable. That's this friend, Jesus. Somebody else wrote this, one who understands our silence. That's Jesus too. Another answer came in, a volume of sympathy bound in cloth. I'm reminded of the hymn, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. Somebody else wrote this, a watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. And then I was reminded of the scripture where the Bible proclaims him to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. The winning definition, however, read this, a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Can I say that the whole world combined together could do nothing to deliver your soul from hell? Enter Jesus. Jesus came into this earth and he lived a sinless life. He bled and he died on an old rugged cross, not for his own crimes, but for my crimes and for yours. He was crucified. He died. He was taken down from that cross. He was buried. And three days later, he rose again, and he lives forevermore. And if you will place your faith and your trust in him, he will save you. What a friend we have in Jesus.